Um, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn this morning to Zephaniah, the little minor prophet of Zephaniah chapter 3. I was thinking this morning of... It's on, brother? Is it? Should be. Should be on. Um, I was thinking of uh, Ezekiel chapter 9 went through my mind this past week. I don't know if you're familiar with that portion, but in Ezekiel 8 and 9, Ezekiel's given a, a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. It's a very sobering scene. And in the midst of it, there are a few, as the destruction is in vision form, uh, prophesied, and Ezekiel is given a glimpse into what is going to happen to Jerusalem. Uh, there's this handful of people, whatever number they were, that would be spared, that the Lord would have his hand upon, because they are the ones that, and a little phrase, I think it's in verse 4 of Ezekiel 9, that they sigh and they cry. And that's the mark of them. There's nothing special about them except they sigh and they cry. They, they offer up their cries to God for mercy. And the Lord says to have a mark put upon them. And I thought about that, especially in the context and the discouragement that it may have been for them and what they were facing. But then my mind was drawn to Zephaniah and I thought, well, this, this is much more encouraging and I want to be encouraging to you, regardless of what may be going on or where your hearts may be, to encourage your soul from the Word of God this morning. And so Zephaniah chapter 3, the last few verses, we'll read from verse 14. And we read from this verse, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. And I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Amen. Let's still our hearts again momentarily in prayer. God, we are thankful for the living word. It is a living word. And how firm a foundation there is for the saints of God when they look to the word and find there all the promises of God 
and what the Lord has assured us of. Father, bless each of our hearts with a sense of the sufficiency of Scripture for every circumstance and for the promises that are true regardless of the circumstances. We pray that as the people of God, we would be a resilient people. And we pray that thou would make us a people of faith, a people that do know their God, a people that rest in thy word, a people that understand that there is nothing, absolutely nothing more that could possibly reflect more love that the Lord has for us than what has already been said and put on display at the cross of Calvary. Bless us then this morning with a sense of what we have in Christ and cause our souls to be lifted up. Guide the preacher. Deliver us merely from a sermon. The people need a message. Fill us then with the Spirit for this moment, for this hour, for this time, that every heart may hear a word from God. Do it then, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. According to the opening language of this prophecy, we're told in chapter 1, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah during the time of the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now you may know something of Josiah. He was that young king that reigned faithfully and was serving the Lord in the days that he was appointed to from 637 to 608 BC. His reign came to an end about 20 years before Jerusalem was to be sacked by the Babylonians. And yet he himself was faithful. And the question may have been asked, well, well, why didn't the Lord turn things around under the reign of Josiah? Certainly it was a good time, a little time of mercy under his reign. But such were the sins of Manasseh who came before him that regardless of the Reformation during Josiah's time, God was still going to mete out judgment upon the people. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 27 and 28, this word of encouragement uh, to Josiah, Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place, and upon the inhabitants of the same. Manasseh's reign was awful. Absolutely terrible. He had been greatly privileged. His father, Hezekiah, had been a godly man. Again, a man of reformation, a man of change, a man who brought good to the land. And yet Manasseh absolutely opposed everything that his father stood for. And brought the people even to the point of offering their children to Moloch in the fire. I mean, it's, when you read it, you can hardly believe what you're reading. You try to put yourself in the context and imagine yourself to be in a land where you have this godly, God-fearing, good man leading the land. And then a son rises up and isn't just not, it's not that he's just, he's not quite like his father. It's not, it's not that. He is the total opposite. He is everything opposed to what his father endeavored to do. It's, it's a tragic scene 
of the, the fall of men and the, the corruption of the hearts of men to the degree that such a one like Manasseh could rebel so wholeheartedly against all that his father had accomplished. And yet we have the record of his repentance, God's mercy upon him, and yet the Lord had appointed because of the, 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 the iniquity, the sin, the, the, the sheer mountain of evil that was done under his reign and the rebellion against the truth that there would be this judgment that would come. And as I say, Josiah comes and he's faithful, but he could not change anything about what was going to take place. But the Lord shows him a little mercy. It will not be under his reign that these things will fall apart. And Zephaniah is given to be a prophet in the midst of such a time, to be an encouragement to Josiah and those that are living during the time of his reign who are hoping and desiring that God would show mercy, are seeking the Lord for such mercy, and yet they will not see it to the end that they would desire. And yet, while Zephaniah has much to say in terms of his, the accusations of the Lord against the Lord's people, it ends in such encouragement. And this is where we want to focus for just a time. Because Zephaniah looks to a future day. He gets the mind of the people, the remnant, to consider a day where there will be this tremendous sense of gathering in. Where God will build his work up in a way that had never known before. And that Jerusalem would enjoy everything that it should enjoy under the reign of the Lord. And I want us to focus on this portion and particularly on verse 17 that is perhaps rather well known, at least somewhat known by the people of God, where we have this text that says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. The, the context is encouraging. But this verse particularly is encouraging. And I want us to think about it for a little time. Thinking of the might of the Lord in the midst of his church the might of the lord in the midst of his church first of all note with me the might of the lord enables him to deliver us it enables him to deliver us we're told in verse 17 the lord thy god in the midst of thee is mighty he is mighty now this this is a good thing to reflect upon in a time when it seems like everything is out of control to remember that the lord is mighty you may be looking at certain things going on even presently in the realm of politics in this land and wondering what is going on? What is going on? And there are many people. I was just talking the other day with my neighbor and he was reflecting on just the, 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 how there's such a, a polarization, the like of which he has never seen in all the years that he has lived and, and been born in America and lived in America He's never seen the like of it. And these questions are arising in minds and it's bringing even division. He was saying, I can't even talk about these things with my own daughter. I can't bring them up. We can't discuss them because there's such a sense of tension and passion and for the most part, a lack of reason and ability even to discuss these things among certain quarters. So you can't talk about it. And the question may come from the heart's of the people of God. Well, well, who is in control? What is going on? Well, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Zephaniah was living in a time 
Josiah was living in a time where one might again wonder who really is ruling and reigning and what is going on. And yet, the word comes to encourage them, the Lord in the midst of thee is mighty. In Genesis 17 verse 1, God revealed himself to Abraham by saying, I am the Almighty God. The Almighty God. And this is the same here. But you'll see how this might is used, and especially in our text, how it is executed. It's not just a general omnipotence. But the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will save. This is how the power is exercised and executed. It is in the work of deliverance. Now it always puzzles me that while the Lord often reflects his power in this way and talks about his power in this way, that he, he talks about how powerful he is, but it is in the context of his ability to save and deliver, it amazes me that there are those that will actually limit the omnipotence of God at this very point. Especially when it comes to God's saving of men. And so God is omnipotent and all-powerful over everything, except when it comes to saving men. And so in their mind they have this idea that the will of God, or the will of men, trumps the omnipotence of God. And so they think to themselves that man's will is what ultimately draws the sinner to Christ. Whether man wills it or not is the deciding factor. It is where the buck stops. And again, I am amazed because passages like this and other places even more explicit, you see that God exercises his power here in the work of saving. It has to be here. If it is not here, it might as well be nowhere. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, he will save. Knowing that God is in control of all things in the world, and he's governing over all things, doesn't really help much when you recognize your utter inability to save yourself. It doesn't matter if everyone else's little world is under control. If yours is spiraling out of control, it doesn't matter. You need to know that God's omnipotence is working in your circumstances. And for the sinner who's lost and undone, how much he needs to know that God is able to save. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He is able to save. And he's able to keep those that he saves. There's no limitation here. There's no area, there's no realm in which this omnipotence is not known. You don't make it all that he is over all except in this area of the will of men and their power to draw themselves to God. That isn't omnipotence. That's not being king of kings and lord of lords. His absolute reign over all things, over all his creatures, includes their wills. And so he will save. He will save. He will exercise his will in the work of saving, regardless of what's going on. This is good when we think about it for ourselves and what the Lord has done for us. John six forty four, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Or John ten twenty eight, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Or John 17 verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh. That he should give eternal life 
to as many as thou hast given him. All of these verses, rightly understood, explicitly state the sovereign power of the Lord in saving men. In spite of our fallen nature, in spite of being dead in trespasses and in sins, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, he will see it. He's not just mighty to be observed and to be worshipped. He we see that might explicitly revealed in his saving work. I mean, this is where you know God is omnipotent more than anywhere else, isn't it? It is in the fact that he saved you. It's the fact that you were delivered, that you were drawn from the mire of your sin and brought into the loving embrace of Christ. This is his work. You know, when we rightly understand just how dead we are, how lost we are, when we immerse our minds and consider just what it is to be lost, and then to think that we've been delivered, it seems to make every other problem much smaller. If the Lord has done this, then why, why do I doubt him for, for the other? Here I am, a Christian, dealing with problems and trials and difficulties, and they seem insurmountable. But just meditate on the fact that you were dead, spiritually dead. You had no consideration for the Lord Jesus, even those of you perhaps brought up in a Christian home. I mean, I've witnessed it. I see, even in a Christian home, the hardness of heart. I see children that are absolutely saturated in the Word of God, not just from the pulpit. I've been in the homes. I've seen the family worship. I've seen all that goes on. And still, I see a deadness in the soul. I think that such individuals so immersed in the truth can reflect a deadness, an ignorance, a lack of interest, how dead men are. And yet, this is the case for us all. The Lord saves. He exercises his omnipotence to save. He has done it for us. And that helps gives us, give us some perspective when we face our other trials and difficulties. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will put it on display in saving us. So the might of the Lord enables him to deliver us. But secondly, the might of the Lord enables him to defend us. Not just deliver us, but defend us. We read on, he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. We'll deal with that with the end of the text as well. But there's a little part in the middle of dealing with the joy. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. He will rest in his love. What's this all about? What is this? One man puts it this way. He says, the idea in the text is of deity in repose, silent, looking calmly on all the disorders of the church and the world, as knowing that there is one attribute of his nature which will suffice to rectify all things for the deliverance of his people. In other words, there's one part of God that enables him to look at all that's going on and not be anxious about it. And it is his own love. 
His own love gives rest to his own soul, gives a tranquility within himself. Now, you could develop that out and draw out other application and truth here. But this is what the text is saying. He, that is the Lord, will rest. He will be silent. If you have a margin, it may translate it that way. He will be silent in his love. In other words, the love of God is a foundation of tranquility amidst all the chaos of the world. Nothing catches the Lord off guard. Nothing takes him by surprise. You think of what goes on even in the life of believers, that they sin, that they rebel at times, yet the Lord is not surprised. We, we thought of it just in our communion service. In John 13 verse 1. I mean, just at the point, I mean, just, just go over there for a minute. Look, get, make sure you're really familiar with just what is so startling about the context of this. John 13. You go, you go to the end of it. We'll begin at the end. And verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Peter says, I love you to the end. Even if it means death, I will love you to the end. Jesus says, no you won't. No you will not, Peter. Not in the way you think. You think you will be perfectly consistent, that you will be willing to lay down your life with me, and all of that, you'll follow me perfectly. But you can't do that, Peter. You're going to fail there. And that's what makes verse 1 of chapter 13 all the more encouraging. Because the Lord knows this. He's not taken by surprise. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Oh yes, if it said that he loved them which were in heaven, we would not be surprised. They're perfected in holiness. We get that. But here, here it's told that he loves them that are in the world. And it's in the context just before his most eminent disciple is about to prove that he cannot follow wholeheartedly Christ. And yet Christ still loves. In other words, think of it this way. He is not unsettled at all by his knowledge of Peter's failure and all of their failure. Because they're all going to forsake him and flee. He's not unsettled. His love continues on. It doesn't waver. It doesn't go up and down. His love continues on. He loves them to the end. It is settled. And that helps bring the context out of our text. He will rest in his love. If he was resting in your faithfulness, then he would have no rest. There would be no repose there. The Lord's heart would be up and down, fluctuating, watching you, thinking, oh no, what's it going? And there would be no rest there at all. But he rests in his own love. His love continues on faithfully even though yours does not. His heart lays there and rests. 
Oh, his people are all over the place, but his love remains steadfast. And how does it do so? Because it is all rooted in the work of Christ. Why does the Lord love you in this way? How is he able to how is the Lord able to love Peter to the end, even though Peter's full of failure? That he's gonna deny the Lord? How, how is it? Except that it is rooted in his own work. That he is gonna live and die and shed his blood. Washing away all Peter's sins and reconciling Peter to God and and doing all that's necessary to bring peace where there ought to be nothing but the wrath of God. And then that, that the love of God flows freely to those who are in Christ. You think of when the Lord says to, when the Father speaks to the Lord Jesus from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And some of the translations, they have changed the language a little there. They might say, with whom I am well pleased. It's not necessarily wrong, but it misses something when it says with whom rather than in whom. Because when the Christian rightly understands, especially what Paul brings out so frequently in his epistles, the union of the believer with Christ. When the Father is looking, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, the Father can rest in the Son. The relationship between Father and Son is a relationship of rest. He can rest there. There's no anxiety there. There's no lack of harmony there. There's perfect harmony because there's perfect holiness. He rests there in a perfect, harmonious relationship. Where then are the people of God placed but in Christ? They're in Him. And so constantly through the epistles, Paul is drawing us in Him, in in whom, in Christ. He's he's constantly peppering the mind of the believer to realize you are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, therefore there is rest There is peace. Nothing will ever separate you from what? The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just as God is at rest in the love that exists because of Calvary. So there is this rest that is enjoyed for all the people of God. The Lord rests in his love. He's able just to rest there. Oh, all your ups and downs through 2019. Cast your mind back. 12 months have passed. A year of disappointment. A year of failure. Oh, you you may have succeeded in one or two things, but... Most of the time we we look and we just, (laughs) we wonder at our own lives, our own inconsistency. Yes, we're, we're consistent in that. We're consistent in being inconsistent. But his love is the same. It's exactly the same as it was at the beginning of the year. The Lord wasn't looking, well, I'll love you if. You just go through with all your plans and you do everything you're 
I've called you to do and asked you to do and you read your Bible every day and you pray every day and witness to someone every now and again. And <laughs> no, no. If, if, if the Lord's repose was dependent on your living, it would be nothing but anxiety in the heart of God. And that's why our text says he will rest in his love. His love continues toward you even with your ups and downs. It remains exactly the same. It's a blood-bought privilege. It's positional. It's what Christ has earned for you. Amazing. Matthew Paul says, The love he showeth to thee shall be rest to him. Not thy loveliness, but his own love shall satisfy him. Yeah. This is what the cross has accomplished. The blood of Christ has written an unbreachable treaty of peace between God and his people. And he rests there. I often think the lines of that hymn What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done I know them all and thousands more yet Jehovah findeth none. So again Paul asking the series of questions in Romans 8 who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He will rest in his love. You can be confident of that. He is resting in his love. Therefore you can rest there. You can rest in what is unchangeable child of God. The love of God for your soul. That brings us thirdly to consider the might of the Lord enables him to delight in us. Not just to deliver us and defend us, but to delight in us. He can actually delight in us. And that's what it says. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will joy over thee with singing. <laughs> the blood of Christ silences the judgment of God. But it doesn't silence God. It silences his wrath toward his people, but it, it doesn't silence God altogether. The Lord sings. Did you know that? He sings. That's what it says. He will joy over thee with singing. <laughs> the great choir master of heaven is the Lord himself. Turn to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. This is so well known, and yet it amazes me at times that people seem to miss a crucial part of it. It's not everything about it, but it's crucial enough in my mind. Luke 15. 15, yes. 
And you have the context of the Pharisees murmuring because Christ receives sinners and eats with them. And I, I love this because there's, you know, they're <laughs> basically bringing a charge. Oh, this so-called rabbi and teacher, he, he receives sinners and eats with them. We would never do that. <laughs> and what follows is basically the Lord saying, you have no idea how much I receive sinners. I receive them far more than you even begin to grasp. And so he goes on and explains. What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying, Unto them rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek, it, seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her neighbours and her, her, her friends and neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, I don't know how many times I have heard it. I hear it all the time. People talking about, you know, you're praying for souls that someone might be saved or in some context about that and praying that the angels might have cause to rejoice in heaven and then connected with the salvation of a sinner. And I understand why, because that's essentially what it's saying, but it's, it's like, why are you focusing on the angels rejoicing? The whole point of this is the joy of the shepherd, the joy of the woman herself. It is he who finds the sheep, who comes back and initiates the joy of other people, saying, will you not rejoice with me? He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, rejoice with me. He's the one initiating it. He found the sheep. He's delighting in this discovery and this success. And he calls all his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. Verse 7, Likewise, like in the same fashion, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. And again, when she finds the coin, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. It doesn't even say the angels rejoice. It's joy in their presence. Now just stop for a minute. There's joy in their presence. Who is it? <laughs> Where's the joy coming from? What's going on here? It's very, it's very clear. It's very easy. It is the Lord himself, beloved. He finds the one that is lost. He finds the sheep that has gone astray. He finds them. He comes and he rejoices. He initiates joy over every lost sinner that's gathered in. And he sings and he calls everyone in. Come rejoice with me. The angels are, are observing, watching on. And so in heaven he initiates joy there. And there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. It's in their presence. They're watching on. They're watching the Son of God rejoice over the success of his work. And so we should not be surprised when we come to Zephaniah 3 that it is not angels, and it's, it's the Lord himself 
The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. As I say, he is the grand choir master of heaven. All those who loved his lead in singing will be made redundant in heaven as the Lord himself leads in the worship of glory. I think we're, we're, we're almost... We, we, we can understand... If for some reason it seems to make sense that angels would rejoice over the salvation of a sinner. Yeah, angels, angels would rejoice over that. That's, that's, that's not what it says. <laughs> doesn't even say they do rejoice. It's just in their presence. But it does say very clearly, Luke 15, Zephaniah 3, The Lord rejoices over thee with joy. Amen. He will joy over thee with singing. Again, the context. The context is, this is written to a people who are heading for judgment. They're heading for a time where they're going to be enslaved and their world is going to be turned upside down in a way that they can't even begin to fathom. And yet the Lord gives a word, look, look, I'm still in the midst of you, I'm still saving, and I still find joy in the same. It's my great delight to save and to sing over the salvation of the lost. Go to Jude, go to the little epistle of Jude as well. You see something of this truth echoed there in the doxology of Jude. Now Jude is a little epistle where a dear brother wants to encourage the people of God, but there's so much that is discouraging false prophets just arising everywhere. And so he has to exhort them to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints, I'll not go into all the detail, but there's much discouraging. And, and the reason it's so discouraging is because the people that he's referring to are people in the church, not outside the church, they're in the church. Even when he draws historically, largely, are those that were, that were, they were part of the body. And, and they turn away. And the question the sensitive conscience asks is this. If these people in the body turn away and they're not real and genuine, well, what about me? And so his doxology is designed to help and aid the mind and counsel the mind and where to rest, not in yourself but in the Lord. Jude verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Able, dunamis, power, might. It's what we considered earlier. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. It's the same one here. Now unto him. What, what, what's, the, what's the prophet doing? Look to the Lord who is mighty. What's Jude saying? Look to the Lord who is mighty. And in what way is he mighty? In what particular facet is the mind being drawn to? In Zephaniah 3.17, he will save. And here it's saying, able to keep you from falling. Similar language. Deliverance. Salvation. The Lord will exercise his omnipotence in preserving you. Does that mean that you will never fall, never slip, never make a shipwreck at times of your Christian testimony and life? No, it's not saying that. It's not saying that. 
David, the man after God's own heart, he had to write himself. He says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, yet shall he not be utterly cast down. Why? Because eventually he'll have the strength to get up and go on. No, because the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. There's an omnipotent hand holding on to the child of God. The same was the case for Peter. What makes the difference between Peter and Judas? What, what ultimately is the difference? There's something in Peter? No. To, to, to Judas, the Lord said, go, do what you must do. Away you go. To, to Peter it said, Satan hath desired to sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. There's someone keeping Peter, preserving him. I unto him that is able to keep you from falling. It exercises his power in keeping you from falling, preserving you. But look at it. And to present you faultless. Present you without fault, child of God, before the presence of his glory. That's what's going to happen. The child of God, according to the catechism, will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. I wish we could see each other that way. That would help a lot with church life, wouldn't it? That we aren't so caught up when someone falls or says something they shouldn't say, but that love would cover a multitude of sins. It would help greatly if we would put that into practice. And if we could see one another the way the Lord sees us, who sees all that we have done that is wrong and more, but sees us through the blood that he has shed and therefore he acknowledges them to be his. And he will present you without fault. Without fault. Before the presence of his glory. And he's going to do it with exceeding joy. <laughs> joy. You know, sometimes in church, church life, there, there's people that come to the church and you'd rather they didn't. <laughs> you can't help these thoughts go through your mind sometimes. Because of things they say, or things they do, or because of by the way they act, or the people they discourage, or whatever. I mean, you see all sorts of things, especially from the position of the pastor, and you hear all sorts of things, and you think, what on earth are they thinking? They do more harm to the work of God than help. And yet, the Lord sees all of that. And not, not once does it make a difference to how he looks at us. Really. That's what it's saying. I'm going to present you faultless. And I'm going to do it reluctantly. No. <laughs> I'm going to do it because I have to. I have no other choice. If I had my way, I wouldn't be there. No. No, with exceeding joy. It's almost like Jude is searching for, he's, he's kind of looking for the language to help him to express the extent of divine joy. Exceeding joy. I can't even get my head around it. He will do it with joy. Yes. Singing is our text. That's what it says. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will joy over thee with singing. You'll enter into glory with your head down, hanging down because you're such a failure. And yet there's no... Drooping head in the Lord. No. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. We are His. And he is ours. And He says, come in. 
And he does it with joy. He does it with joy. He does. And he prays. He prays that, that they may be where, with me where I am. That they may behold my glory. So every child of God, their day comes should the Lord Jesus tarry. When he brings us finally to glory. He brings us there and he does it with joy. Oh, there's mourning at the loss on earth. But there's no mourning in heaven. No. He's rejoicing. Because one for whom he shed his blood is now in his presence forevermore. Yes. This is, this is, this is a mark of the people of God. They are a people who are... whom the Lord himself sings over. He sings over you. He does. <laughs> if we were to write songs about each other, it might not be too flattering but the Lord sings over us he sings and nothing, nothing nothing discourages him we come in some Lord's days we're fed up you know we're, we're, we've, hit, we've hit rock bottom we've come to a point where we can't go on but the Lord the Lord never gets there he's never there he's constantly in a perpetual wave of perfect joy over all his people over, over all his work, the gates of hell will never prevail against what he is accomplishing on the earth. His constant joy. So even as you have been discouraged of late, he's not discouraged. He's not. He's resting in his love. He's rejoicing with singing over each one of you. Just Waiting the day when he'll finally bring you home. <sighs> oh, if you could hear, amid all the taunts of the world and all the discouragement of your circumstances, if you could just, if you could hear, remember what McShane said, that godly Scottish minister of the 19th century? He said, if, if I could hear Christ praying in the next room, I wouldn't fear, I can't remember what way he put it, I basically wouldn't fear anything. If I could hear the Lord Jesus Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear anything. But he is. He's praying for me. This makes no difference. But just turn it slightly and get another little ray of light through that thought. As you could hear him singing. Hear him singing. The Lord's singing over you and his salvation of your soul. No disappointment no discouragement. He's just rejoicing that you're saved and you're his. That would be encouraging, I think. <laughs> to hear the singing voice of the Lord Jesus. Alexander McLaren was a contemporary of Spurgeon. A good, a brilliant preacher in his own right. And he said, it becomes us to see, it becomes us to see to it that our religion is a religion of joy. Our text is an authoritative command as well as a joyful exhortation that we do not fairly represent the facts of Christian faith if we do not rejoice in the Lord always. In all the sadness and troubles which necessarily accompany us, as they do all men, we ought by the effort of faith to set the Lord always before us, that we be not moved. 
Churches have their day. They come and they go. Buildings open, buildings close. The Church of Jesus Christ continues on. And never once has the Lord ever shed a tear over the closing of a building. Never once. Even if it, ever, even if it comes to that. Never once. He's never sad. His work continues on. His people do their work. I love when you read at the beginning of Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Everybody's mourning. I mean, how do you replace Moses? How? You try to try to put yourself in that position. Like, you, you, for 40 years, everything has hinged on this man. At least that's what it looks like, humanly speaking. Without Moses, we don't leave the land. We don't get out of Egypt. We don't, all kind of, humanly, you looked, Mo- Moses is the person. I mean, if ever there was a man who would possibly be worshipped, it was Moses. Extraordinary character. If you're truly comprehending all that happened during the last 40 years of his life. But the Lord didn't shed a tear. <laughs> Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, Joshua. Go. There's a work to be done. The work will continue. Someone will carry it on. The Lord will see to it. I trust that He will give much guidance and leadership in the days ahead here. But let's just let's just keep that thought. He's rejoicing. He's not sad. So let's not be sad here. Let's let's rejoice that His work continues regardless. And then simply ask, Lord, what do you have me to do here? What would you have me to do here? And to joyfully serve as you sing your praises and glory. May the Lord help. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand things from the brink of eternity. Help us to see things as thou dost see them. And lift our eyes. To behold Christ. Oh that we might behold the Son of God. And see him singing today. Singing over us. Singing over this little flock. Singing. No hesitation. No regrets. No reluctance. He's going to bring each and every one of us one day to be with himself. Until that day, Lord, lead us every step of the way and make us faithful servants of our Savior. We thank Thee for this time. Be with us in the afternoon hours. And as we return here tonight, may we enjoy something of Thy presence again. And may Thy word go forth with power to our hearts. These things we pray in Jesus' precious name.